Last week, we started our series, Let's Begin at the Beginning, and go to the end, then stop. What we're going to do is we're going to go through the first 11 chapters in about six weeks. We're going to go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and just point out, like, what legitimately is going on there. Because when a lot of people read it, we tend to, a lot of people just straight allegorize it. They'll say, oh, it didn't really happen. It's just sort of a story that kind of gives us a view of what was going on. Other people, you know, say, well, it's just pure history. And literally every word of it is exactly what happened. Forgetting that the way languages work, we all have turn of phrase. We always, we always, everything is a variation of something else. We use the word understand. Because it references a concept in building where if you were bringing in a new builder, you would take them under the structure and let them stand under the structure and get a view from the bottom side. And therefore, by standing under the structure, they understood how to build the rest of the structure. So like if you brought, had one guy start it and you're going to have another guy finish it, like I said, you bring them under, they, you, they stand under the structure, and they figure it out, and then they would go back and finish the rest of it. So they understand how it is. So that's how you do all language. We use terms, the, ter the concept set means for things to be in a proper order. A set is a set of knives. A it, there's order of knives. The term set means anything to be in proper order. The word upset means to be up, upside down, something out of order. Therefore, the term upset is anything that is lacking order. However, that's how it's been for years. And a matter of fact, you can go read old stories, the old uh, Willy Wonka stories in the chocolate factory written prior to the 1920s, anything written prior to the 1920s, especially in Brit British writers, they'll use the word upset to describe anything that's out of, in disarray. We would, oh, it was in disarray or out of order, upset, meaning it's just upended, it's whatever. Now, in the 1920s, there was a horse that was named, and in America specifically, we only really used the word upset to describe a sick stomach, meaning your stomach should have been in order, but it was upset. So there was a horse that was known for throwing up as a baby, and they called it upset. There's a little filly. It started racing, and it was an amazing runner. Little filly, undersized filly. And I cannot think of the horse that it was running as, but it was a horse in the 1920s, and if I could remember the name, it's like one of the greatest horses ever to run. Like, and it was like the great-grandfather of Secretariat or something like that. You know, like one of these prized horses won all these races. And it looked like it was going to win the Triple Crown. It had won, you know, the, uh, the Kentucky Derby. It had won the Preakness. And now it's going on to the Belmont to win the Triple Crown. And everybody just knew this thing was going to win, this one horse. All of a sudden, out of the last gate comes a little upset. And it ran such a beautiful race that it won one of the very few races of its entire life by knocking off the other horse that was supposed to millions and millions of dollars on this horse. And this little old filly beat it and stopped it. So, fast, they, every, upset wins the Belmont. Upset wins the Belmont. Two, three years later, Notre Dame is playing, and as long as they win this game, they're going to win the national title. Sure enough, Stanford beats them. And the paper runs the headline, Stanford pulls an upset. Referring to the horse. Okay. Because the horse shouldn't have won. Stanford shouldn't have won. Notre Dame, Newt Rockney, they, they should have trampled them. But instead, they pulled an upset. They won when they shouldn't have. From then on, upset refers to 
Anytime somebody wins, it's not supposed to. It's an upset. In baseball, oh, the Tampa Bay Rays beat the Yankees in an upset. Even though, one time, upset just meant to be someone who throws up or has a sick stomach. That's how language works. It, you, so when you read something, if I were translating something from French to English, you have to remember they have idioms in their time. And the word idiom is the same reason why we use the word idiot today. Because you and I can all agree on English, and this guy over here is talking some strange thing. I'm like, what's this idiot? Well, he's speaking in idioms, meaning that's what's local to his surrounding. They all know what he's saying. As soon as he leaves New Orleans and comes up here, we go, what is this? Sounds like an idiot. He's speaking in idioms. An idiom is a local sound. It's, it's terminology that people understand. So you always have to remember that. So when you read something in the Bible, remember the King James translators especially, they were trying to make sure the meaning didn't get lost, but they were trying to stay as close to the original text as possible. See, like there's a, a line in Luke where Jesus says, let these words sink deeply into your ears. Okay, even in 1611, those translators could very easily have said, listen up. Instead, they wanted to be true to what the text actually said, which in Greek, their version of saying, listen up, is let the words sink deeply into your ears. So the two things mean the same thing. But one is a very exact way of saying it, a very exact way to say it. And another example of what we're going to run into today is a concept like the word serpentine. We say, oh, it's serpentine. What are we referring to? Something that has a slick look to it. A slick look. Now, if somebody were translating a sentence or a page into Spanish or German, there's a chance they see serpentine, they think serpent, and they translate it in some way that actually means like a snake. Now, in their language, snake, that might be the word that means serpentine, glossy or shiny or slick. But the person reading it in Germany might not know that necessarily, that it's not a snake but it is in fact just something slick looking. However, you, would, you could have two people standing next to each other and they disagree. I think it is a snake, I think it isn't a snake. That's because they're reading it in German, but it was originally written in English. If you go back to the English, what was it supposed to say? It wasn't a snake at all, it was just slick looking. So, we need to remember these sorts of things, that language is important when we read, and especially the Bible, where they're in a time different from today, with a, a dialogue different than today, with different objectives, different goals in life, everything's different. So we have to try and put ourselves in that mindset. So when I read this, just look for, you know, some of the things in here that we see that will catch your eye as we go. Chapter 3, starting in the first verse says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good food, and that it was pleasant to the eye, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam, and Adam said, and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, that's God speaking, said, Who told you that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gavest to me, gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and you shall bruise his heel. Under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, and, in, and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou returns unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken... For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. For the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil, and to know, and now, lest he put forth his hand, to take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and for this time that we come together to learn from your word. May you be with my words, be with these people as we hear this, that we will get a deeper understanding of you and what truly did happen in that garden. We ask that you will continue to work with us and continue to build us and mold us and shape us into your image. As we get closer to you through the word, that we will become more like you, more loving, and that we will be able to carry this in our everyday life. We ask for all these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> Did you know, my first inflammatory statement of the day, did you know God did not make humans to live forever? Okay. I always like to say this. Ken Ham, you know who that is? The guy from Answers in Genesis? He's wrong. Ken Ham likes to talk about how, they, well, if they hadn't sinned, they'd have lived forever. Not necessarily. That, I mean, that's true. But he says man was made perfect and would have stayed perfect and lived forever. That's not true. What did we read in that 22nd verse? Read the 22nd verse. Chapter 3, verse 22 says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground whence he was taken. So, all God had to do was keep him from eating of the tree of life, and he would die. The tree of life was the only thing keeping Adam and Eve living forever. They would not have, that's, that's it. So, they were just like us, they were more perfect than we were. They were very close. I mean, they were as perfect a human being as you can get without becoming divine. Their genome, their genetics, perfect. 
They were perfect human beings in every way except they had the ability to sin, just like everyone else does, and they did. However, they were not made to live forever. I mean, we see it right there. God's concern is they'll eat the fruit and live forever. So what did he do? He didn't say, I'm going to make you mortal so that you die. Nope. All he did was say, cut off the access to the fruit, and they die automatically. So, like I said, Ken Ham is wrong. Ken Ham, Ken Ham will say nothing died. He'll tell, he actually says, nothing died. Animals live forever, too. Everything just lived forever. It's not true. He doesn't say anything about animals living forever, especially. As soon as you take it from people to animals, that's all conjecture, because that's not in there. Honestly, I believe that fixes all kinds of problems if you just let the Bible say what it says. Because think about this. Why do we have vultures? What is a vulture's job? To clean. clean. It cleans up the dead bodies. Well, what dead bodies if animals live forever? They didn't. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the animals are doing their thing, and the animals live a natural life cycle and die. And what cleans them up? The vulture does. What cleans them up? The scarab beetles do. The beetles come over, eat them. The worms eat them. The things eat them. God created this world to be self-sustaining. He did do that. He created to self-sustain. And even without man, the earth would just go. Now, the earth will grow and flower and hit to the point that it kills itself. If you ever take a, a field and just throw a bunch of seeds of different trees out there and leave it alone, those seeds, will, those trees will grow, 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 grow. They'll get so heavy and dense, all the ground foliage dies. There's no more ground foliage. Now there's no more ground foliage. Guess what? There's no more insects. There's no more small animals. There's no more things fertilizing the trees, and therefore the trees slowly but surely die and fall over. You'll walk through any forest, you'll see trees just laying over dead. Why? Because they died. They'll kill themselves. All this wildfire we're seeing out on the West Coast, that's because they came in and said, you're not allowed to cut trees down anymore. So now all those trees are just catching fire. If we could go in and do what God said, which is subdue it, See, so he said he created man to keep the world in check. So our job is to subdue, not destroy. I will say that. Anybody who doesn't know, we need clean streams. We need clean rivers. We need clean, you know, every open patch of grass, clean as we can get it. We are to subdue it so that it doesn't kill itself, but we are to manage it properly. So, again... We were put in here to subdue the world. Now, as long as they were in the Garden of Eden, they could eat the tree and live forever. I always like to point out, it doesn't tell us how long they were in the garden. Were they in there a day? Were they in there a month? Were they in there 80 years? Who knows? Now, I will like to point out that there's a chance they were in there for a while. For a long while. And I say that only because... It says that, you know, Adam was up in his 130s when he had Seth. And Seth was not his first child, of course. He had many other child, children before him. But Seth is the one that he had that lived on, of course, because the first two, you know, had, well, Cain was the oldest and he got banished and all that. But Seth continued. The thing is, is if, what are the odds that the two of them were sleeping together? And it took 130 years to start having kids. Eh, not so much. Not so much. And there's even like, it's not biblical, so you can't quote it, but there's extra biblical stuff in Jewish literature and all these. Some will say that Adam and Eve had 30 kids. Some will say they had order 50 kids. Some will say they had 12. It's though the 12 stuff is probably not true. That's probably just because of the 12 tribes. So they're saying 12, but granted, I do probably, I mean if. If they did live really long lifespans and they were healthy in, in their 500s, they were still like a person in their 40s it was today, they probably had children for a long time. So how many kids can you have? If a woman had one child, let's just say she weaned them till back in the old days, a woman usually weaned a child for several years. Let's say they were weaning them five years. If you're having a child over five years and you did it from the age of 100 until you're 500, a lot of kids, a lot of kids. So, how long were they in that garden? I don't know. I always like to say they're, I think they're in there about 80 years. 
I really do think they're in there about eight years. You do the math on at you know, all the different you know, the ages of the kids and also I think they're for 80 years. So they got to hang around and just be loving life, living in a perfect environment for a long time, and they still sin. I like to think of it longer because it would be even crazier if they were only in there for like, like there's one, one manuscript out there you can read. It was written about like 200 BC. It claims they were only in there for 12 hours. <laughs> and all it took was 12 hours. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I could kind of see that. Like I was like, don't touch that tree. And they went over and touched it instantly. Um, some say seven days, some say 12 days. Again, the 12 is probably has to do with Israel. Um, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But I just like to think about such things like that. Like 80 years, I think that's about right. But so let's go back to the original part in the first. And this is the other thing, too. All the descriptions of, of the Garden of Eden in chapter 2, which we kind of skipped over most of those last week, all the descriptions of the Garden of Eden are actually the same exact descriptions as heaven in the Old Testament. Heaven is described as being a garden that sits on top of a mountain. Heaven is described as having, you know, flowing flowers and trees and fruit. And think about John. As soon as he starts talking about heaven, he's talking about fruit and stuff. So heaven, in my belief, as in my belief, conjecture, is... That heaven was a spot where heaven and earth, or Eden was the spot where heaven and earth met. Eden was a real physical place, but it was sort of like a gateway. Like it was a spot between heaven and earth. The two met right there. And so Adam and Eve lived in between two worlds. They lived with access to divine beings, divine creatures, and this sort of thing. Or, you know, angels. Now we're going to start... And we're going to read that first verse, 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, we've gone over this because we're doing the story, but I always like to point out that first verse, when it says serpent, the word in there in Hebrew is nakash. That's a noun. Gets translated as serpent. But its true meaning, just like upset, originally means to have a stomach ache. The truest meaning of the word nakash is slick or shiny like brass or polished copper. So it's a shiny thing. Anything that is shiny will have something to the effect of nakash or even that. You know, like, the word copper is nakusha. So it's just nakusha is copper. Nakash is copper-like. Shiny. Slick. Slick looking. Burnt. And later on, they'll say, they'll repeat it twice. And when they say that, they'll say it looked like burnt brass. Meaning like it was on fire, like it was still molten. So, nakash means that. Matter of fact, that's a noun. As a verb, the word nakash means to practice divination, which is to speak to devils, speak to, speak to you know, you go to, to somebody who is a, today we call them a psychic, and if they're really communing with demonic spirits, they're doing divination. Well, the same word for divination, nakash, same word. Nakash also means serpent. So... There is, there is a reason for all that overlay. In that ancient mindset, serpents were thought of as being wise. Be wise as serpent, as gentle as doves. Serpents were thought of as being wise. Nakash is the term to describe bronze. Serpents tend to have a slick, brassy, even that, some of them, like when they look the underneath, their, underneath their necks, they'll have a red sort of hue under the neck, especially cobras and stuff, red on the bottom of their necks. So they, it just matches. The two things go together. It's a perfect fit. Nakash. So that is a being of light. It is not a snake. That's an angel that she's talking to. 
Also, I like to point out the fact that no other animal except for a donkey in the story of Balaam ever talks in the Bible. And so animals did not talk in the Garden of Eden. We've never talked to animals except for when we're in our house talking to our dog. And he doesn't get it. So, but the thing is, is when he talks to Eve, Eve doesn't even go, huh, who are you? She just goes, oh, hey, snake. No, she didn't go, hey, snake. She said, oh, hey. As if it was a normal thing for her to see, a being of light speaking to her. So it's not a serpent. The serpent is a concept. Now, even that, there is some wordplay going on there. Because get this, last, like I speak, spoke last week about how that we, the, I talked about the Egyptian creation stories. In the one Egyptian creation story, the first, the first one that we were discussing, the Hermopolis, they actually, when they describe people, men come from frogs. How does that is? Frogs come up and they turn into people, men. That's the reason why to this day, men kiss the frog, it turns into a man. Women, however, were snakes. So frogs are men, women were snakes. Now, the reason for that is because the word for snake is also a euphemism for wisdom. And in the ancient word languages, Egyptian, Hebrew, those sort of languages, the word wisdom was feminine. They have gender, a masculine noun and a feminine noun. The noun for being wise was feminine. And therefore, when you're saying a snake, the feminine noun for a reptile is snake. So feminine, masculine. Frog is a masculine. So they put the two together. So there's wordplay going on here, because in the Hebrew mindset, when they talk about Satan or the devil, they're not necessarily saying or putting blame on the being. A lot of times they say the word ha-satan, which we say is Satan, actually just means the accuser or the one in opposition. They use that word, that term, to describe any person who's going against you for any reason. They also describe that as a person who's making an accusation. And they dis- use it to describe your conscience. Your conscience, the accuser. So, again, there's wordplay going on here. That chances are a being of light put the seed in her mind. Did God really say that? And then she thought about it and herself became the instrument for wanting that. Her own mind became its own greatest enemy and began to do that. And the reason why I'm going to make that point here is as we continue to read. Two says, the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, the thing is, there's remember, she's saying God said that, that God did not say that. God said to Adam, do not eat of the tree, but he didn't say, lest, nor even touch it. So what Eve is doing there is quoting Adam. Adam must have told her, don't eat it, don't even touch it. So he's not, she, and remember, that's because God didn't talk to her about it. God talked to Adam. And he figured Adam could handle talking to Eve about it. So he talked to Adam. He made the pact with Adam. And then, so when she's quoting that saying, well, God said, she's actually quoting Adam. So she's misapplying. God didn't say that. So she's misapplying that. But then... Four says, and the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Now, I like that because in Hebrew, it's the word mount. It's mount temutan. Mount temutan. It's basically the same word over and over again. Mount to mount. So it's death, death, twice in a row. What that means is he actually says to her, you shall not die the death. The reason why I die the death, I like that term, is because that's the description 
that Jesus used, Paul uses, and John in Revelation uses to refer to the second death of when you get thrown into hell. But to her ears, it probably sounded like he was just saying to her, well, you won't fall over dead. You know, he's like, oh, you won't just plop over on the round dead. But that's not who he was talking about. See, it's a, he, the, the serpent is tricky, crafty. He's saying one thing, she's hearing another. So he's able to work with her. So, and again, that's the point. And he is true about that. He's saying, well, just because you eat it, you're not just going to fall into hell. And that's true. She didn't. So he actually was kind of right. But he is wrong in the sense that because you ate it, you are in jeopardy of now dying the second death, going to hell. So again, it's one of those things. Now, five says, for, and this is Satan still speaking, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. Now it means white, the word is widened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, remember, the word gods in there in the Greek is, is Elohim. It means divine ones or spirit beings. It doesn't mean God as in a god-god. It just means one of us, basically, saying, like, I'm an I'm a angel. And he's saying, I know what good and evil is. You don't yet. So, therefore, when you do eat it, you'll know. Now, again, the concept is that he's, he's using tricky language there. And one of the issues you have is that, see, this is one of these things that I always like to point out, just, and I'll get into this first. People will say, well, why was Adam and Eve held responsible for eating the apple when they didn't really know what was going to happen to them? And I say, well, they knew what was going to happen to them and said they would die. Yeah, but they didn't really know what that meant. True. Here's the issue with that, though, is, the difference that the person is trying to make is what's called experiential, meaning you experience something. Okay, I know it's cold outside because I've been alive a long time. And I know when I'm looking out that window, I see snow on the ground. And I know from experience, snow means cold. Okay, I can tell you right now that if I touched a piece of metal that was heated to 500 degrees, it would burn my skin off my hand. I, the reason why I know that is even experiential. Because I've burnt my hand on something far cooler than that. And I can imagine what it would be like to burn my hand on something that hot. However, I don't know what it's like to kill someone. I've never done it yet. Yet. Like the point... I'm not saying I won't, I'm just saying, yeah, hasn't happened. Yeah, yeah, right. Up to this moment, I haven't. Do I still know that it's wrong? Yep. Why? Why do I know it's wrong? God said. I said, don't kill. I didn't say, well, I've never experienced killing. Maybe I'll just kill one time so I know what it's like, so I can know whether or not God was right about that. Doesn't matter. God said, don't do it. Just because you don't have the experience doesn't mean you don't have the capability of knowing you shouldn't do something. Therefore, they are still responsible, just like the child who maybe they have never experienced getting swatted because they stole something before. You say, don't take that. It's not yours. And they take it anyways. You know, you're walking outside the store and I was like, where did you get that? Took it, put it in my pocket. And you spank them. You swat them on the butt and you say, we're going back in the store and giving it back. That swat was because they knew better. How'd they know better? They never stole before. Because you told them not to steal. You instilled that in them. So they knew. They were still responsible for their actions. Even if they hadn't experienced sin before, God said, don't sin. Therefore, they shouldn't have sinned. So they are responsible. If anybody tries to bring that up, that's, that's the way to discuss it. Just because you haven't experienced it before doesn't mean you're still not guilty of it when you do it. Now, Starting in verse 6, it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was ple pleasant to the eye, or pleasing to the eye, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, 
She took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, I've heard people say that, that they think Adam, well, Adam just ate because she ate, or she enticed Adam, or even the one guy said, I think Adam knew she did something wrong, and he was like, I'm going to take one for my woman. I don't think any of that's true. Honestly, I think she ate it, and, got, and Adam came walking over and said, you ate, you ate off the tree? Wait, you're not dead. Give me that fruit. I'm going to eat too. How come you get to eat the fruit and not die? That's what I think happened. That's really what I think. I don't think she had to entice him. I think she, he wanted to eat that fruit too. He just hadn't eaten it yet. But the thing is, though, is in there, the word in there, both places where it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant, the word pleasant is the exact same word as the tree to be desired. Pleasant and desired are the same word. Ta'awah, desirous. Ta'awah, dainty, desired, exceeding. I'm going to give you all the, I'm going to give you a bunch of ways it's translated in the rest of the Bible. Dainty, desire, desirous, exceeding, greedy, pleasant, lust, lustful, and lusting. What is the one common thread throughout all of that? You want it. You want it. It's something you want. You really do. And deep down, you want it. Nobody had to trick you to want that. You wanted it. So, and actually even that, the to'awah actually comes from the word hawa, which means to covet. So it's actually saying she coveted it. But what is coveting? It means to greatly desire something, to have a longing or lusting after something you don't deserve. So that's why we're told not to covet, because coveting also breeds hatred. Because when you covet what something else, someone else wants, you're saying, why do they have something I don't have? They don't deserve that. I deserve that. Or I want that too. That's coveting. You have a certain level of Envy over the person, or over the thing. Coveting. She saw it, and for the first time, it occurred to her, it's actually really good-looking fruit. Hmm. Now, I happen to believe it probably took her some time after that to, to eat that. I think it did. I think she probably said, yeah, and went on about her way. The next day, she's walking around. Maybe she's playing with a squirrel or something. And she looks over and goes, hmm. A couple days later, she's doing whatever. And Adam and them are walking through talking. And she's looking at that thing. It just, everyday desire, longing, lusting for that. Matter of fact, it's funny because in Numbers, where we had just, again, in the story, had read that, how the one place was called Kilbroth Katoa. It actually means the graves of desire. Same, similar terminology, almost identical to what she's dealing with right here. There's an analogy there. The person who wrote that numbers was referring back to Eden. Those, those Israelites died because of the greediness of their stomachs. They want meat, but we're not even satisfied with the meat God's going to give us. Well, you have everything in the garden to eat except that one tree. Not satisfied. Same concept, not being satisfied with what God gave you. She coveted it, she desired it. She's thinking something, now all of a sudden her, her mindset changed. Think about this, because it says, when we read that, it says, when she saw that it was pleasant to the eye and a tree to be desired to make one wise. It was to be desired to make one wise. She suddenly started thinking that God didn't give her something. They went from thinking God gave us everything, because how'd she answer the serpent? God gave us everything. He says, did God truly say you can't eat every tree? Her response is, no, we can eat every tree. Now all of a sudden, she's thinking, hmm, but that one, that one's no different than the rest. It looks good. Suddenly her thinking changes to, not trusting that God gave her enough. Not trusting what God said. Her first sin 
came before she ever ate the fruit. Her first sin came before she ate the fruit. Her sin was covetousness. She coveted something she was told she wasn't allowed to have. It was quite literally the only thing in the entire world she wasn't allowed to have. Said so you can have everything in the world save this one thing. And that was the one thing that could make her happy. That is human nature. Just because I'm saying her doesn't mean it's any different than him. That is human nature. Everything in the world, the one thing you can't have is the one thing you want. Coveting, greed, wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Now, verse, uh, verse we'll continue, it says, And so she took the fruit thereof and did eat, and then the, literally the word, and gave to her husband with her, and he did eat. So at the point at which she actually did eat it, he was with her at that point. So when the snake was with her, she was alone. When she ate it, she was with him. I have a feeling. She said, probably they were walking by, and she said, well, I'm going to eat that fruit. She reached up and ate it. And he said, huh, she didn't die. The interesting thing is, is we say that he gave unto her husband with her. The terminology doesn't describe as though she forced, she even necessarily gave. He may have taken it from her. There's nothing in the wording that describes her doing anything to make him want that. So again, he probably wanted it himself. He was probably going through the same thing she was. Now, 7 says, And the eyes of both of them were open, were widened. It actually comes, that term, eyes open, actually is a reference to widening your vision, all the things you can see. So their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This has nothing to do with nakedness, in the sense that we think of it. In the Hebrew concept, this is one of those idioms, to be naked in front of someone is actually the same thing it could mean in English. If you say, man, you know, we were talking, and I just laid it all out there. I told her everything I know. I just laid my whole heart out there. And I was left naked in front of her. I was left the doll to bear. Meaning, you didn't really take your clothes off, you just put it all out there. And what happened? You felt uncomfortable. That's the most important part. You felt self-conscious. When you're saying, I laid it all bare, you felt self-conscious over it. That's what it is saying here. When they ate, their eyes were widened, and all of a sudden they started to see the differences between each other. For the first time, they started to realize, you're not like me. I'm not like you. They started, and they felt self-conscious. They it had nothing to do with the nakedness of them necessarily. It had to do with the fact that all of a sudden, they had something they wanted to hide. And that came through in a whole manner of, you know, of, of anxieties and stresses. And the nudity thing aspect it's just one aspect. What really happened was suddenly they wanted to hide their expressions from the other person. And therefore, because they felt ashamed or embarrassed to notice. And therefore, they made the aprons to cover themselves, but to cover on the outside what they felt on the inside. So as we keep reading, and oddly enough, by the way, I just want to point out, because I'm reading from a Bible that actually has the Hebrew in it. And uh, the word in there is Aram. Aram. Widened and naked, exposed. Aram. Comes from the word Ur, which actually means the same as, remember in the first verse where it says, the serpent was more subtle. Some translations will say shrewd. Some will say crafty. It's the same word, Ur. Crafty, shrewd, arum. It's for the word nakedness. So now all of a sudden what it is, is they suddenly felt a sense of self. And they felt a sense of shrewdness. Again, and I think it has less to do with themselves 
as they started to know, because of the term, they started to notice the other person. Maybe you're not as perfect as I thought you were. Maybe you're, or all of a sudden, maybe one of them starts looking the other one up and down. And they're going, what are you looking at? And they start to feel, because they're noticing the differences. They're being shrewd. They're, they're observing suddenly. And you can tell when somebody's looking at you different. I mean, you can do it now. You go meet someone down on the street somewhere. Oh, hey, blah, blah, blah. You meet each other again. And all of a sudden, you notice they're looking at me different. Maybe they're looking and they like what they see. Maybe they're looking and they're trying to figure out, well, she got carrying a gun or whatever they're doing. They're looking at you different. You can tell that in a person. So again, this has to do with the embarrassment they felt. So eight says, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. If that isn't ever what we deal with every day. (laughs) God's coming. Let's hide. And the Lord called him to Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said unto him, Who told thou that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat. So he's saying, How do you become aware of yourself? And the man said, this, This is the man's second sin getting ready to come in. And the man said, the woman whom thou gave to me, to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So what is Adam's second sin? He passed the blame onto God. Everybody thinks that he passed it on the woman. He didn't pass it. He said, what did he just read? We'll read it again. And the man said, the woman whom thou gave to be with me. He's saying, God, this is your fault. Had you not given me her, it would have been fine. But you gave me her, and guess what? She screwed the whole thing up. Thanks a lot, God. Good going, God. He passed the blame on to her, on to God. So his second sin, his first sin was doing something he wasn't told, told not to, not trusting God. Second sin was, came immediately following when he blamed God. And we're about to see Eve's sin. Because... It then says, 13, And Lord God said unto Eve, unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. That's actually the same sin. Because she's saying the serpent did it. Who made the serpent? God did. It's God's fault again. So both of them are pushing it off, going, Well, it's not my fault. And ultimately, who are they saying was in fault for? God did. Because if God had never made that light being, he never would have done it, and therefore I never would have sinned. So it's actually your fault, God. Sorry. Good going, God. You sure messed that one up, God. (laughs) So, her second sin, she blamed God. 14 says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And now people, because of that, they think of a snake. Because a snake is on its belly and it rolls in the dust. That's not what that's referencing. Again, it's not a real thing. That's a reference to the fact that from this point on till forever, Satan will be thought of as evil, as the... He's actually referred to as the Lord of the earth, of the Eretz, of the dust. He's the earth, he's the, he is the Lord of the earth, the dirt. And he's referring, and that's also, again, it's a shadow of the fact that he's referring to hell. You're ultimately, you're going to be in hell. You're going to be below the dust. Now, I do like to point out that God says in here, God is the very first, you know, the very first ever prophecy in the entire Bible is God's prophecy. In this next verse, 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Thy seed is Satan, he's talking her and the evil ones that follow Satan, and her seed, which is Christ. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Meaning, Again, he'll kill Christ, but he ultimately is going to crush your head. He's going to win. Because think about a bruised heel versus a crushed head. So, 
Again, God was the first one to ever put a prophecy. That's the very first prophecy, 3 of 15. And then it says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Okay, a lot of people make the point here, and I hate this, they do, that God is saying that he made birth pains worse for a woman because of this. It's not what he's saying here. First of all, again, what does it say? It says, I will greatly, there's an and in there. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Okay. I believe had they never sinned, they would have, she would have never had children. Because I don't think they had sex in the garden. I think they were so carefree and life was so full, they never crossed their minds. Matter of fact, that's the reason why they sown fig leaves. For the first time, one of them saw the other and said, hey, I think, uh, wow. I don't think they actually thought that way until then. So they would have never conceived because there had never been sex. And therefore, any children or offspring they would have had would have been God creating them somehow. But he says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. The reason why sorrow is in there, first of all, this world is terrible. And what do people do? It makes you sorrowful, doesn't it? But anyone who's ever been a woman, had a, been a, a pregnant and had children, or has, who, you could have nephews and nieces. You don't even have to be the one who birthed them. Have younger siblings. What is the one word you would take to describe those children and what they do to you when they get older? Sorrow. There's one thing I could say I've caused my parents a whole lot of at sorrow. Greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. So the more children you have, the more you will be sorrowful for those children. It has nothing to do with pains being worse. It is the fact that she would have avoided them so she wouldn't have happened, but also that she would have the children. And I think the next line makes that even more abundant because it says, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So it's, again, any, especially if somebody's ever lost a child and then you have another child, the emotions that that woman will have, the sorrow for the one that was lost, how many women have lost a child or had a stillbirth? And they'll say, how many children do you have? I have four on earth and two in heaven. Both are still her children, even though they were stillbirthed. And she has sorrow till this day over the loss of them. Though she never even met them, she'll have sorrow for them. And you have sorrow for the children you already have. When your children have grandchildren, you have sorrow for the ch grandchildren because of all the evils they'll have to experience in their life. You're joyous for the life that they have possibilities of having, but at the same time, there's a level of sorrow. And man, if we could just shield them from some of what this world is going to throw at them. Sorrow. And in my opinion, sorrow and childbearing are pretty much synonymous with each other. So, that is not, God did not punish her by making it worse. Matter of fact, the punishment is coming next. <laughs> the next line. And thy desire shall be to thy husband. I think the woman was made to desire for a man to be a man and to help shield her, to help be with her. She desires to come under his protection. But what does it say? And he will rule over thee. He'll never be quite what you need. There will always be something between you two. What is that? It's human nature. But what is, ask a lot of women out there today. If they, if they're in, they could be in a bad marriage, it could be in a pretty good marriage. Well, if there's one thing you could do, it, oftentimes it has a lot to do with, oh, if he could just be more, a little more protective or just a little more caring. There's that little thing there. She actually desires for him to take more responsibility in the raising or the, or of the children or in the life that they live together. But he's not quite taken that. She desires for him, but what does he do? He rules over her, meaning he's not ruling in love. 
That's why Paul tells men, live with her in love. Because he's telling her, your desire, what your natural instinct as a guy is, is to rule. Don't rule, live. So again, I think that's, if there's a curse in here, truly, it's that curse. That her desire is for her husband. His, him, however, he will rule over her. He will not be what she needs. But I think in the end, that's actually a good thing because that's why she looks to God. If he was everything she needed, she would never look to Christ. So that's actually on purpose. And then, of course, Adam 17 says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I have commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. Again, for thy sake. This is not people say, oh, he was punishing them. No. He said, for your sake. And it actually means for your benefit. The word is benefit. There. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Now, it's sorrowful because life is hard. Life is difficult. But what God did was God gave man work to keep his mind occupied. If you just sat in a room all day and did nothing, you go crazy doing that. You go nuts after a period of time, being alone by yourself. You'll, be go, you'll go nuts just if there's just people in a room with nothing to do. God gave man work to keep his mind occupied so that he had something to take his mind off of the sorrow of living. And to do that. So the work was created for man's benefit. However, he does say, because you're going to have to till the ground, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So again, that was all benefit. 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. In Hebrew, it's actually, it's actually kavwa. Kavwa means life giver. Life giver it means life proceeds out of. It's actually what it means. Life comes out of. So life giver. He gave her life. He called, called her life giver or life because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. So we see the first killing of an animal for purposes other than eating. 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of the of life and eat it and live forever. That's the last point. 22 is a shadow or a symbol of Jesus Christ. Christ is the tree of life. Christ is the tree of life. We are separated from the tree of life. Quite literally. They were in the garden where heaven and earth met and they got separated. And therefore, we, the only way we have to get back to that tree of life is faith in Christ. Christ is that tree of life. And if we put our faith in, then we have access to eternal life yet again. So if we reach out our hand and take hold of Christ, we live forever. Just as Harris says, if they were to do that. Now I always like to point out, just imagine if a person could live forever and be evil, what type of world we would live in. It'd be awful. But in heaven, everybody, we don't devise evil anymore. And therefore, like I said, Christ is that tree of life. And therefore, this, this, it can be used as an analogy to be a reference to the fact that we are attempting to get back to that tree. The most important part of this is the tree of life. We are trying to recapture our connection with God so that we can have access to that tree of life, which is Christ. And we have access through faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and for this time we come together in your house. May you continue to watch us as we go out today, throughout this week. May you continue to help us as we enter into this world that we'll know the right things to say and do. We can answer questions and be, be solid examples of what you would have us be. And that we can know more about what you have told us through this book that we and therefore answer the questions people have be what people need so that they can get closer to you may you watch us as we go out keep us safe keep 
secure, keep us dry and warm. And after all these things, in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.